Today, we are presenting another set of second opinion cases from AUA 2018. This topic, testosterone deficiency. Enjoy. Well, it gives me great pleasure to be here to present the inaugural AUA testosterone deficiency guidelines for you. And this is case-based. I'll do a brief introduction and then I'll introduce the speakers. Uh, none of us have any relevant, conflict, relevant conflicts and it's very important that you understand that to be on this panel, not a single member could have any industry relations to be on this panel. So completely uh, devoid of any uh, industry conflicts. We'll talk about the background and definitions. That's my task. We're going to go through cardiovascular statements. We'll go through fertility statements and the prostate statements. These are the panel members. Thank you to all of them. And I want to pay particular uh, thanks to uh, Leila Rahimi, who is the AUA program manager who helped uh, herd the cats uh, during the uh, one and a half year effort. So, from a statement of need standpoint, T-prescriptions have nearly tripled in recent years. Many men are using testosterone without any clear indication that they have testosterone deficiency. It has been estimated about 25% of men on T-therapy have never had baseline testosterone levels checked. And up to 40% of men who are on treatment have no follow-up labs. It's estimated that about one-third of men on T-therapy are currently do not meet criteria of testosterone deficiency, saying that many men are in need of testosterone therapy and not receiving it. And of course, as you're well aware, there's a proliferation of anti-aging and low T centers. So from a definition standpoint, the panels say that clinicians should use a total T level of less than 300 nanograms per deciliter as a reasonable cutoff in the support of the diagnosis of low testosterone. A series of randomized controlled trials for C-therapy that used a cutoff of less than 350, when you look at that patient population, the median baseline T level was 249 nanograms per deciliter. The panel does not recommend using free T measurement as the primary means of diagnosing testosterone deficiency because of the high coefficient of variation and the, the ill-defined cutoffs for free testosterone and testosterone deficiency. A very off-sided study for uh, free testosterone as a means of diagnosing testosterone deficiency is the European male, male aging study, which suggested measuring free T with an equivocal total T level between 230 and 317. However, in that very fine study, it was limited by the fact that it was a single free T level using a calculated method without, and it correlated with non-specific sexual symptoms. It is recognized, however, by the panel that there are some men with higher total testosterone levels or highly symptomatic who might benefit from T-therapy and therefore clinician judgment is recommended. The diagnosis of low testosterone should be made only after two total T-measurements are done on separate occasions, both conducted in an early morning fashion. Significant circadian rhythm changes, T-values at 8 versus 8 a.m. versus 4 p.m., 20 to 25% lower in younger men and up to 10% lower in older men significant intra-individual variation, as you can see listed here, and using two to three measures can reduce variability by 30 to 43% respectively. We urge you to use the same laboratory and the same assay if you're doing sequential testing. The literature supporting the impact of food on testosterone testing that you should fast the patient is weak. Do not test patients during acute illness. The clinical diagnosis of testosterone deficiency, this is not low T, this is testosterone deficiency, is only made when patients have low T combined with symptoms or signs. We accept that the symptoms are very nonspecific, as you can see listed here. We recommend against using questionnaires, validated questionnaires because of the nonspecificity, and a target physical exam is recommended. We urge you to consider measuring total testosterone levels as previously outlined in the following populations even in the absence of symptoms or signs. Unexplained anemia, 
bone density loss, diabetes, exposure to chemotherapy or testicular radiation, HIV AIDS, chronic narcotic use, male infertility, pituitary dysfunction, and chronic corticosteroid use. The therapeutic range we're urging you to target is the middle tertile of the range, which is approximately 460, 450 to 600 nanograms per deciliter. We believe that this avoids over-treatment of patients with a historically upper tertile level range and avoiding under-treatment of men with baseline up upper levels. In 31 randomized controlled trials that demonstrated benefits to T-therapy, the median post-treatment T-levels were 490 to 600 nanograms per deciliter, respectively. I'm joined today by three of the panel members. I'm very happy to have them here. Robert Brannigan is professor of urology at Northwestern University Medical Center in Chicago. Emily Kurtz is our cardiologist. She's an associate professor in the Division of Cardiovascular and Internal Medicine at Vanderbilt. And Landon Trost is an assistant professor in the Department of Urology at the Mayo Clinic. So without further ado, I'm going to invite Emily to come up and run through the cardiovascular disease statements. Good morning. Our first case is one illustrating what is known about testosterone and cardiovascular risk. <clears throat> Our index patient is a 50-year-old Caucasian male who presents with signs and symptoms of low testosterone is characterized by decreased energy, depression, irritability, and low libido. His medical history is relevant for several cardiovascular risk factors. He has a high-stress job as an investment banker but as a non-smoker, non-drinker. His family history is relevant for premature cardiovascular disease and a first-degree relative, and additionally, he has poor sleep habits but has no observed evidence of snoring or apnea, nor chest pain or shortness of breath. He's hypertensive and overweight, but has no evidence of gynecomastia, nor testicular or prostate abnormalities by exam. His laboratory data is relevant for normal H&H, normal electrolytes, other than an impaired fasting blood glucose and a hemoglobin A1C that's also consistent with prediabetes. His fasting lipid profile reveals mixed dyslipidemia, but his early AM total testosterone is low. His PSA, LH, estradiol, prolactin are all within normal limits. His coronary artery calcium score reveals evidence of subclinical coronary atherosclerosis with a score in the top quintile for his age-matched men. What's the first step with regard to management of his low testosterone? All men with testosterone deficiency should be counseled regarding lifestyle modifications such as losing weight and increasing physical activity as a treatment strategy, as these have the potential to increase total T levels and or reduce signs and symptoms associated with low testosterone. In this case, we added aspirin and statin for management of atherosclerosis and initiated aerobic exercise, weight loss, and improved sleep hygiene. Six months after optimization of his therapeutic lifestyle strategies, his blood pressure and fasting blood glucose has nor have normalized. He has no significant cha changes in his chemistry panel. His lipid profile looks improved, but his total testosterone remains low. So at this point, what is the next step with regard to management of his symptomatic low T? So aside from its association with more commonly recognized non-cardiovascular signs and symptoms, epidemiologic and observational studies have shown that low testosterone is associated with an increased incidence of major adverse cardiovascular events, namely myocardial infarction and stroke, and possibly with cardiovascular-related mortality. In our evidence report, observational studies demonstrated a significantly higher risk of myocardial infarction and stroke in men with low testosterone compared with normal testosterone, with odds ratios of 1.33 and 1.41, respectively. A meta-analysis of seven observational studies also demonstrated an increased likelihood of having low T in those who died from cardiac causes with a relative risk of 1.25. For these reasons, we recommend that clinicians should inform testosterone-deficient patients that low T is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. 
As compared with men with normal testosterone, low testosterone in men is also associated with an increased prevalence of several cardiovascular risk factors, including insulins, insulin resistance, and risks of developing hypertension, dyslipidemia, and obesity. Given the association between low testosterone and increased cardiovascular risk, our committee recommends that not only should testosterone-deficient patients be informed that low testosterone places them at higher risk for cardiovascular events, but the clinician should recommend assessment of all testosterone-deficient patients for cardiovascular risk factors. Don't worry, urologists. This can be done by the primary care physician or cardiologist. Prior to initiating treatment, we recommend that clinicians also counsel patients that at this time, it cannot be definitively stated whether testosterone therapy increases or decreases the risk of cardiovascular events or all-cause mortality. So we've just established that current evidence consistently shows that untreated low testosterone levels are associated with an increased risk of MACE. However, studies that measure cardiovascular benefit or harm in men with testosterone, um, on testosterone therapy have returned inconsistent and controversial results. For example, randomized controlled trials included in our evidence report evaluating the incidence of cardiovascular events in hypogonadal men demonstrated no significant difference in the incidence of major adverse cardiovascular events, including MI, stroke, or cardiovascular-related mortality, nor in all-cause mortality in men using testosterone therapy as compared with placebo. However, these randomized control trials have not been powered to evaluate the effect of testosterone replacement therapy in men on cardiovascular events. Other epidemiologic and observational studies and meta-analysis have reported conflicting data regarding whether the administration of testosterone in hypogonadal men increases, decreases, or has a neutral effect on cardiovascular events. Those that suggested an increase in MACE raised enough concern that in 2015, the FDA released new safety labeling for testosterone replacement therapy. But the findings of these studies have been debated, and in many cases, their methodologic limitations have precluded uh, meaningful conclusions from being drawn. Among these limitations are study design, variability of the testosterone preparations used, inconsistency in, in following testosterone levels, as well as inconsistently defined endpoints used to describe the adverse cardiac events. So for example, they might have used edema or hypertension or nonspecific electrocardiographic changes as opposed to heart attack, stroke, or cardiovascular-related mortality. <clears throat> Until there is definitive evidence proving an association between testosterone therapy and subsequent MACE, the panel recommends that clinicians counsel patients that the current literature does not definitively demonstrate that testosterone therapy increases the risk of major adverse cardiovascular events. Men who are on testosterone therapy should be advised, however, to report the occurrence of any possible cardiovascular symptoms during routine follow-up visits. Six months after initiation of T-therapy, this patient's low sex drive, lean body mass, energy, and depressive symptoms have improved, as have his visceral fat, lipid profile, and fasting blood glucose. <clears throat> but his total T is higher than the recommended middle tertile, and the hematocrit is elevated. So what's the next step in management of testosterone at this point? We would decrease the T-dose to avoid polycythemia. Patients should be informed that there is no definitive evidence linking testosterone therapy to a higher incidence of venothrombolic events. However, prior to offering testosterone therapy, clinicians should measure hemoglobin and hematocrit and inform patients regarding the increased risk of polycythemia. The odds ratios among five randomized control trials in our evidence report that evaluated hemoglobin and hematocrit levels in hypogonadal men using testosterone therapy revealed a significant increase in the incidence of elevated hematocrit with an odds ratio of 6.46. 
although the absolute number of events, 19 out of about 1,000, was actually quite low. The literature examining the relationship between testosterone therapy and increased incidence of venothrombolic events has returned conflicting results. The concern about the possible association between T-therapy and VTE led the FDA in June 2014 to require product warning labeling for VTE. However, this decision was based on anecdotal cases in those with previously undiagnosed thrombophilia and later supported by a retrospective case control study which suggested an increased risk of VTE but corresponded only to an additional 10 cases per 10,000 person years. Since the FDA warning in June 2014, four large observational studies have not shown an association between T-therapy and increased risk of VTE. So 10 years later at age 60, this patient develops unstable angina and coronary angiography reveals single vessel obstructive coronary disease requiring a single stent placement. What should be done about a testosterone administration at this point? The currently available literature does not provide enough evidence to offer clear guidance on the use of testosterone therapy in men with stable existing atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or remote history of MI or CVA. Most trials evaluating cardiovascular risk associated with T-therapy and other randomized control trials such as the recent T-trials have excluded men who had a history of cardiovascular events within the preceding three to six months. Based on these precedents and the uncertainty regarding cardiovascular risk associated with T-therapy, it is the opinion of the panel that testosterone therapy with close monitoring to ensure safety and appropriate dosing surveillance may be considered in these patients after a three to six month waiting period. In summary, the key guidelines with respect to testosterone and cardiovascular risk include the following. Low testosterone is a risk factor for cardiovascular events. Therapeutic lifestyle intervention should be recommended as an initial treatment for low T. The cardiovascular risks and benefits of testosterone therapy in men with symptomatic low T remain uncertain. There is no clear evidence of venothrombolic risk with T therapy, but polycythemia should be avoided. There is not enough evidence currently to support a guideline for testosterone treatment of men with recent CVD events. For now, we will defer to exclusion criteria used in recent RCTs. And now I'll invite Bob Brannigan up to the stage to present the next case. Dr. Denstedt, Dr. Misham, uh, Dr. Mohal, thank you very much for the opportunity to participate today. I just want to say it was a real pleasure participating in this panel. I think that this is an important issue, and as a male fertility specialist, I'm very grateful that the uh, issues of fertility were part of this, given the high prescription rates for testosterone therapy. So let's talk about our case, a 26-year-old white male who presents with many years of a history of low sex drive, poor response to working out regularly, and an increase in central adiposity. And he comes to us wondering if he should have his testosterone level checked. He has no prior medical or surgical history. He's newly married and he's a consultant, and he neither smokes nor drinks alcohol. He's a tall guy. He's six foot three, weighs 190 pounds. He has no gynecomastia. Both testicles are moderately atrophic at 12 cc's volume. His vas deferens and epididymid Ds are normal bilaterally, and he has no varicoceles. So we send off a testosterone, and that comes back low at 200 nanograms per deciliter. And when he's notified of the results, right away he asks, hey, can I start testosterone gel therapy? So what is the next step in the management of his low testosterone? Is it to prescribe that gel? Well, it isn't. We know from guideline statement number seven that in patients with low testosterone, we should measure a serum luteinizing hormone level. Serum LH levels will allow us, the clinicians, to establish the etiology of testosterone deficiency, and that, that may be an important factor in determining adjunctive tests that should be ordered and the ultimate treatment that we offer. 
So we sent off an LH level at the same time as the repeat testosterone. They come, both come back low, indicating hypogonadotropic hypogonadism. And during the follow-up with these lab results, he indicates that he and his wife want to begin efforts to conceive in about six months. And we know from this guideline statement that in patients who are interested in preserving their fertility or in patients who are interested in fertility efforts at that time, that FSH levels should be sent off. And so an FSH level is indeed sent off, and that also comes back low. And our impression at this point is that this patient has hypogonadotropic hypogonadism. And this is, again, a couple who's going to begin efforts to conceive a pregnancy in six months. So what's the next step in the management of his low testosterone? Well, we know from guideline statement number 10 that men with testosterone deficiency who are interested in fertility should have a reproductive health evaluation performed prior to treatment. So this includes a history and a physical exam geared towards reproduction, but then also adjunctive fertility testing such as the FSH I mentioned, and also semen analysis testing. And so after the discussion, he agrees to undergo semen analysis testing. And interestingly, both semen analysis reveal normal ejaculate volume azoospermia. So then what's the next step in the management of his low testosterone and fertility? Is it to prescribe him the testosterone gel to treat the low testosterone? Well, absolutely not. That would be the last thing that we'd want to do. We know from statement 23 that exogenous testosterone therapy should not be prescribed to men who are currently trying to conceive. Exogenous testosterone has inhibitory effects on the production of intratesticular testosterone, and these high intratesticular testosterone levels are imperative to maintain normal spermatogenesis. So when we give exogenous testosterone therapy, that suppresses intratesticular testosterone production, and that can lead to severe oligospermia or azoospermia. So exogenous testosterone would actually have a contraceptive effect in this patient. So then what are the options in managing his low testosterone and fertility concerns? Well, we know from statement 27 that there are other medical options available. Clinicians may use aromatase inhibitors, human chorionic gonadotropin, and selective estrogen receptor receptor modulators or a combination of these agents in men with testosterone deficiency who desire to maintain their fertility. These agents all are commonly used to promote the endogenous production of testosterone. In other words, they all raise testosterone in these men. And while they share this common overall treatment effect, there are substantial differences in the pharmacological characteristics and mechanisms of action between them. And again, a key point, these can be used alone or in combination with each other. Let's talk a little bit more about these three classes of agents. Aromatase inhibitors, what do they do? Well, they block the conversion of testosterone to estradiol that happens in peripheral fat tissue. And so the net increase in testosterone that they cause is due to two reasons. First of all, there's decreased diminishment of testosterone uh, being converted to estradiol. Then also, as those estradiol levels are lowered, that lessens the feedback that estradiol has centrally at the pituitary gland. As a result of that lessened estradiol feedback, LH levels rise and production of testosterone increases too. Human chorionic gonadotropin is an LH agonist, and this agent directly stimulates lytic cells to secrete and produce and secrete testosterone. And then finally, selective estrogen receptor modulators, or SERMs, block pituitary estradiol receptors, and therefore they block the estradiol negative feedback at the level of the pituitary gland. And as a result of SERM treatment, LH levels rise and testosterone levels typically rise as well. So after discussing options, our patient elects to start HCG therapy. And after three months on HCG, his total testosterone normalized to 400 nanograms per deciliter. His testosterone deficiency symptoms, namely the low libido and the low muscle mass, also improved. 
So remember, he started out with azospermia, and the repeat semen testing at three and six months later showed that his sperm concentrations had actually normalized to 18 million and 20 million, and his motilities and morphologies were also normal. Interestingly, when treating these patients with hypogonadotropic hypogonadism, these sort of modest Im improvements in sperm concentration are typically what's seen, but the fertility of these patients with these numbers is usually quite good. So this couple began timed intercourse using an ovulation detection kit, and they conceived successfully by natural means nine months after he started HCG therapy. And they had a healthy son by natural, born by natural means at full term. So I think that there are some key points to take away from the guidelines that I hope all of you keep in mind. First, men with testosterone deficiency who are treated, I'm sorry, men with testosterone deficiency who are interested in fertility should have a reproductive health evaluation performed prior to treatment. Second, serum LH levels can help establish the etiology of testosterone deficiency and determine if adjunctive tests are needed. Adjunctive testing should be ordered in special cases of men with testosterone deficiency. For men interested in fertility, FSH levels should be sent. For men with gynecomastia, estradiol levels should be sent. And for men with hypergonadotropic hypogonadism, a karyotype should be sent looking for possible Klinefelter syndrome. Exogenous testosterone therapy should not be prescribed to men who are currently trying to conceive because it has contraceptive effects. Alternative therapies, including aromatase inhibitors, HCG, and SERMs, can be used in men with testosterone deficiency desiring to maintain fertility. And it's important to note that these are commonly or typically used in an off-label fashion. Finally, the long-term negative impact of exogenous testosterone and spermatogenesis should definitely be discussed with patients who are interested in future fertility. Thank you. Next, I'd like to introduce Dr. Trost to talk about testosterone and prostate cancer. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. Um, it's really an honor to be on this uh, panel and very grateful for the opportunity to be able to, to discuss this. I just wanted to, if you'll forgive the brief editorial for a second, to give you an idea of what the experience was like on a testosterone guideline panel. Um, in part, I think, because it was led by uh, Dr. Mohal on things, this was extremely rigorous. Um, over a roughly two-year period, nearly 500 abstracts were pulled for this. Uh, the synthesis document that they gave us was over 300 pages. So this is the summary document you know, that you're pulling all the information from. And each of the articles, were each of the randomized control trials that were included were individually reviewed to make sure that the information was populated correctly, that the analyses were done correctly. We also ran against every other meta-analysis out there to see are we different from them, and if so, why, and which is the better methodology to use. So this was an extremely rigorous uh, panel, and if anything, I think it should give uh, great faith in the AUA and in the resources and time and energy that they put into uh, this document. So with that, I'll go ahead and get uh, started. Um, one of the most common uh, things that a lot of us deal with in uh, deciding what to do with uh, testosterone is what to do with a man with prostate cancer, either existing prostate cancer or someone at high risk or, or whatever the case may be. And so my area is specifically going to be looking at that. I broke it down into three common scenarios that we run into and try to give some recommendations based on the evidence and data as to what the best practice may be for this. So in the first one, we have a 45-year-old, so young Caucasian male. His total testosterone is in the, or in the range where we would consider supplementation, so he's at 180 nanograms per deciliter, and he has multiple low T symptoms. So he meets the requirement, and again, he's a young man. So from a prostate cancer standpoint, the natural question is, well, do you get a PSA in this guy? The reason it's even a question, uh, if you look at the AUA's guideline on early detection of prostate cancer, uh, they recommend specifically against screening in men in the 40 to 54 range for those at average risk of prostate cancer. 
Now, there are high-risk features that are mentioned in the guideline, including race and family history, but there's no specific comment on low testosterone. So should low testosterone be considered a risk factor um, for having prostate cancer? Um, let me just go back here. When you look at the intermittent androgen deprivation uh, literature, you can see that every time someone's on androgen deprivation, PSA goes down. When they come off of it, it goes back up. When they go on it again, it goes back down. And we see this fluctuating nature of up and down uh, of, of PSA. So clearly reductions in testosterone lower PSA, and the restoration of testosterone in these really low ranges uh, results in a restoration of PSA as well. So how does PSA uh, respond uh, to testosterone? I think it's not surprising that in men that have very low testosterone that we would see some PSA rise for it. We looked at a meta-analysis of 28 randomized controlled trials and found overall the rise in PSA ended up being 0.2. So very minimal, but statistically significant. And the lower the testosterone, the more likely that they were to experience an increase. In essence, they were on ADT before. Uh, when their testosterone is so low, it's functioning as ADT to some degree. Um, and then you get a boost in a PSA when you get them back to normal ranges. But importantly, and this is a key take home, uh, there was no increased risk of elevated PSA. So in the meta-analysis of six randomized control trials, the odds ratio was 0.85. Um, so again, no increased risk there. Now this is important because if you take it a step further and you look at a meta-analysis of seven trials, uh, what is the association of low T and prostate cancer? In other words, if you have low T, are you more likely to have uh, prostate cancer or not? And the guideline essentially said no. Uh, when you look at the forest plots here, it overlaps with zero. And if, let's say, you had another five studies and you had just strong enough power to be able to show a difference, it would be a minor one. So either there's no association or a very minor one with it. However, low T did end up uh, popping out as an independent risk factor for high-grade disease in men with prostate cancer. The lower the T, the higher the risk of uh, high-grade malignancy. And in uh, a similar type of study, so Gleason 4 plus 3 with primary 4 component, uh, low testosterone had an odds ratio of roughly twofold higher um, compared to not. So that led to guideline statement number 12, that PSA should be measured in men over 40 years of age prior to commencement of testosterone, with the goal being of trying to detect if prostate cancer is existing at baseline. So moving on to the second case, now we have a 55-year-old African-American male, PSA 3, strong family history of prostate cancer, and again meets the criteria for low testosterone and multiple uh, low T symptoms. So in this case, the question is, uh, does testosterone predispose you to a higher risk of developing prostate cancer? And when you look at uh, the risk of testosterone therapy and subsequent development of prostate cancer, uh, again, we go back to some of those earlier findings. So the 28 randomized controlled trials, PSA rose by a little bit, not much. When we did a subgroup analysis of actually more than 10 subgroup analyses, um, there was no difference in the optimal T level achieved, the route of administration, the duration of treatment, or any factor along those lines for it. So going back to the other one that we talked about uh, before as well, six randomized controlled trials, no increased risk of elevated PSA. And perhaps most important, a meta-analysis of four randomized controlled trials specifically uh, directly showed no increased risk of prostate cancer. And you really can't ride the line too much uh, more tightly than that as far as forest plots. Now this is consistent with other meta-analyses that are out there. Uh, probably the, the one that's looked at this um, very specifically is the Calif one from 2005. And in that, you can see that even though the rate of prostate biopsies went up for them, because the PSA was rising, they did prostate biopsies at a higher rate. But prostate cancer was not detected at a higher rate. Um, so even in the setting of, of increased screening for it. 
So this led to statement number 17, which is that clinicians should inform patients of the absence of evidence linking testosterone therapy to the development of prostate cancer. Uh, said more simply, uh, testosterone does not cause de novo prostate cancer, period. So moving on to case three, uh, again, we're looking at a 55-year-old African-American male, had Gleason 6 on active surveillance. He ends up undergoing a radical prostatectomy for Gleason 4 plus 3. Now, again, this was primary component 4, T3A, N0, R0 disease. Uh, PSA at uh, six months was undetectable. And he meets criteria for testosterone supplementation. Again, so low testosterone and multiple OT symptoms. So this now comes into the scenario that I think, again, we, we deal with pretty commonly. Uh, what do you do for a guy who is either has in situ prostate cancer or treated prostate cancer? Are they at higher risk of recurrence or of progressing to a higher risk disease because of testosterone? Well, to answer this uh, particular question, there's really two lines of thought, and I just wanted to present both sides for it. So there's data arguing for the safety of testosterone. So if you look at the saturation hypothesis, it's essentially that there's a certain point at which testosterone uh, is additive where you get no additional additive PSA outcomes. So in 41 men with low testosterone treated with uh, testosterone therapy, when you examine intraprostatic levels of testosterone, you have similar levels whether you're on testosterone or not for it. So this concept is the, the prostate is already fully saturated with testosterone. Any additional won't uh, necessarily cause uh, any raises in PSA. Now this is supported by clinical practice and observation. As you boost testosterone here, so you go all the way up to 600 milligrams, the orange line, you don't see a change in PSA. Similarly, after LHRH um, agonists, you see the flare, so you see a boost in testosterone, but you don't see a rise in PSA. But then as you get below a certain threshold, you start to see a decline in PSA for it. Well, there are several studies out there as well, so untreated prostate cancer and treated prostate cancer. In the untreated area, there's retrospective studies showing no uh, increased risk compared to controls. In the treated prostate cancer, uh, looking at prostatectomy as well as radiation, all retrospective, the far majority show no increased risk for it. Now, if you flip this to the other side and say, well, the data arguing against it, we know from Bill Axelson's study that it takes a long time to see differences in prostate cancer. Here, you're nine years even in low-risk disease and seven years at high-risk disease before you can see a difference. So it takes a significant amount of time. The other thing is it takes a lot of power. It takes 86,000 men randomized to be able to detect a 20% difference. If you chart this against all our existing literature, which runs to this total, compared to the total required, you're looking that you don't even hit to a sliver of what's needed to be able to confirm safety. So this led us to conclude that patients with testosterone deficiency and a history of prostate cancer should be informed there's inadequate evidence to quantify the risk to benefit ratio. So just wanted to summarize that PSA should be measured in men over 40. There's no increased risk of developing de novo prostate cancer, and there's an unclear risk to benefit ratio in men with untreated or treated prostate cancer. And I thank you for your time. So in summary, we hope that you will um, utilize this guideline. Please go to the uh, AUA site and look at the supporting text which goes along with these statements. And uh, otherwise, enjoy the rest of your meeting. Thank you very much. Thanks, John. I want to say thank you very much to John, Bob, Landon, and Emily for a really nice set of discussions and presentations. I also want to say uh, thank you to all the members of the uh, Testosterone Guidelines panel. This is a very controversial, a very complex subject. Uh, John and his team have brought a tremendous amount of clarity to this, and it's a, a real service to all those who treat this condition. With AUA 2019 fast approaching, we thought we'd ask a couple people, why should you come to the AUA annual meeting?
just seeing everything that's new and great in urology, and I'm always learning here, and uh, it's just a great opportunity to uh, come up with new ideas, learn new things, and again, to see uh, all my uh, colleagues that I've uh, met over the years. AUA is great for networking. You can always find people that can be a good resource for you. If um, you have questions, everybody's always exchanging numbers and email address, business cards. It's just one of those things that it just brings the community together. The expertise of many people from all over the world that come and concentrate here. That's the main reason to come to the AUA every year.